Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Swirl Suite, everybody. So our episode is a day early this week because we are recording twice and they're pretty big episodes. Our first episode is with Nova Karamatre. Nova is a winemaker over at Trestle in the Finger Lakes in New York, and she is highly educated. She is a master of wine. So she's going to tell us all about that and what that means. So we hope you enjoyed this episode. Also, happy Black History Month. Be sure to go over and follow Janelle at Burger and Wines and follow her Black Wine Story features. Cheers. Welcome to the Swell Suite, everybody. Hey, Glennis. Hi, everyone. Hi, Sarita. What's going on? I'm good. I'm glad that we're not we're not snowed in. <laughs> I'm happy about that. You know, it's interesting because I'm a northern New Jersey girl mm-hmm. and I think I prefer snow over bitter cold. Okay, that's fair. You know, when it gets down in these um, two digits, one digit, I'm like, give me the 32 and some snow (laughs) and I'm good. So you're even okay with shoveling because you you own a house and you got a driveway and the, you know, sidewalk and all that. I didn't say I was okay with shoveling. I didn't say that. I like no, I gotta be careful what you say, people. Um, but you know what? I use um shoveling snow as exercise. You know, you gotta okay. look at it as yeah, okay. I wouldn't be working my upper body as much because I hate mm-hmm. lifting weights, even though I do it sometimes. But when I'm shoveling snow, I was like, I tell myself, oh, you gotta oh yeah, you gonna get arms gonna look good when you finish yeah. doing this. So. <laughs> And then you get to squat, you know, so I use it as an exercise routine. Well, good for, yeah, that's great. I have, um, I have family in Ohio. Um, they said they're having a, a blizzard coming and see, they're expecting, diff- yeah, they're expecting like 15 inches. I was like, oh, oh, nah, oh no, we wouldn't be no. able to handle that. Mm-mm. We can barely handle five inches when we know it's coming. So it would be shut down. Like mm-hmm. it was, it, I, I, it's so vivid in my memory, the 2010 blizzard where where my townhouse is across the um, street, it's open, right? Mm-hmm. So when the wind blows, that snow will blow right on my side of the street and just oh, okay. uh, in my, I mean, literally my front door, I couldn't open it because the snow was like two inches from the top of the door when we had that 2010 blizzard. I had to go through the garage. <laughs> the, to get out and then I just had to shovel a little bit shovel a little bit now that was a little too damn much snow no. No, even for me okay. I was like you know what yeah I am excited to talk to our special guest today because I want to know how she feels about snow and with the vines and everything so Nova how are you welcome to the swirl suite thank you welcome. so much I'm very excited to be here welcome 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 Awesome. Yeah, no, I love the snow conversation. I, I'm a big fan of snow myself. Um, I, I agree with you, Glennis. I love shoveling snow because I, it makes me feel like I'm a gritty, like outdoorsy type person. You know, <laughs> I, you know, I, I always used to get up when, you know, we had our house back in New York and, you know, it would snow and I would, I would get up in the morning at like five o'clock and like, look out the window and see, okay, can we get 
out of the driveway. And if you, if you can't, then, you know, you're, you're getting out and you're getting in your snowsuit and shoveling stuff. And, uh, you know, it's something very peaceful and calming and empowering about going out that early and like, just going, you know, my husband, he refuses to shovel snow. Um, so that, that was, that was all me there. And so, um, yeah, it was fun. But then, you know, there were some days where it would snow like a little bit and you go, oh yeah, we can get out. And then I go back to bed. Um, right. so, <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice balance, you know? It's refreshing too. It just mm-hmm. seems so crisp and clean. It is. Yeah. It's something about the air. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And the bitter cold. Yeah. Once it gets below like 17, I'm like, mm, it gets, mm-hmm. I don't want to go out to that. I don't, I don't no. mind it being in the twenties and snowing. Me, like, that that exactly. never bothers me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Below 17 and into the single digits. I'm like, Oh Lord, don't let no pipes bust. You know, it's true. It, it's you know, true. you start thinking about other things at that point. So yeah, yeah. No, yeah. you're absolutely right. So Nova, for those who don't know who you are, please introduce yourself. So my name is Nova Katamatri, and I am a winemaker and a master of wine. And um, I am the owner and founder of Trestle 31 in the Finger Lakes. And then we also have a couple of other brands that we've added to our family since then. So one is called Snowshell Vineyards, and we make that for nakedwines.com. And then we have a brand new project that I'm super excited about out here in Napa called Fayarua, and that's going to be a Napa cab. So um, mm. Super excited about all the fun stuff happening. Oh oh my gosh. So, okay. I want to make sure I just understood. So are you in New York? Are you in California? I split my time. Uh, Okay. So we are in California currently. So we're in Napa right now. And then in March, we're moving back to New York. So we're going to go back there. And then our family will be based full-time in New York at that point, because it's exciting. My company has now gotten to the point where I can leave my full-time job and work fully on Trestle 31. So I'm so thrilled about that. Um, and so we're going to be based out of New York starting in March, and then I'll still be coming out uh, to Napa because I have some consulting clients out here and then also for our own projects. So. Wait, oh, back up. you became a master of wine with a full-time job. Is that what you're telling me? That is, that is what I'm telling you. Yes. And how the yeah. hell you must be real what? smart. I mean, you gotta be. <laughs> I'm just very good at managing my time. It's, it's, it has nothing to do with intelligence. It's all about organization. <laughs> Well, you know, master of wine is a synonym for master of writing. This hmm. is true. This is very true. And you know who told me that? Say, who told it's you a that? communication. It's a Matthew communication. Stubbs, Matthew Stubbs, master of wine. He was like, this is, if you master, if you can master, be a master of writing, you're good because you have to master how, especially on the theory part, how the person. that is reading everything is interpreting. So if you can master how they're doing it and and being organized in your thought and your writing skill, then you Yeah, I fully agree with that. (laughs) I know, I did not know that. That's so interesting. Well, because the master of wine, unlike the master psalm exam, you know, because the master psalm exam in the US is way more famous. Like people, you know, I, right. if I had a dime for every time somebody was like, oh, so you master Psalm? I'm like, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the master wine exam is a fully anonymous exam. So it's, mm-hmm. you're, it's all writing. So it's all mm-hmm. about how you can communicate through the written word. 
your knowledge of wine and what you're getting from the glass or what you know about a particular topic. And so it's a hundred percent writing. So I, yep. I really agree with that. Completely. Yep. Wow. So wait, you, you've been in, in wine for a very long time. You even studied in college. Like, tell I us, did. like, did you have it on your, your dinner table growing up? Like, how did you even like have a passion right. for wine so early? Well, it's funny because like I grew up in the South and at that time, like wine was not a thing that we did in the South. Um, so no, I didn't grow up with it. It wasn't until I met my husband um, and we met really young. So I was 17 when we met, just so everybody's aware. Um, uh, so his family's Italian from New Jersey. And they, of course, have glasses of wine with dinner because that's just what you do when you're Absolutely. in an Italian family. And so they were the ones that really introduced me to wine. And then after my husband and I had been dating a couple of years, he says, oh, we should start a vineyard. My family in Italy did it. It can't be that hard. And I was in horticulture at the time and I didn't know what it took to grow grapevines. And so I said, well, why don't I look into it and just see what it's going to take? And um, they're very similar to roses, which was my previous specialty when I was in horticulture. And so there's a lot of similarities in the pruning and the diseases that attack both vines and or vines and roses. And so um, I kind of just fell in love with grapevines after that, because, you know, not only are they fun to grow as plants, at least I think they're fun to grow as plants, but you can make such an amazing product out of it. And then you personally, after making that product can go out and sell it to people. So like, it's one of those, those things where you can be fully involved in the whole process. And I really love that. Um, that's one of the things I love about my job. I got a funny for her. Good. <laughs> Okay, so let's go back just a little bit. So you met your husband at 17 and started drinking at 17 with his family? So, okay. Uh, <laughs> he was drinking Chianti probably, and now there's a whole lot we can go down that road with. But I Yeah, so, that, so, so I didn't start drinking with his family, but they kind of normalized having okay. wine with dinner. Um, and I will say I was 20 when I did my first harvest. So oh. yes, all of this was pre me legally being able to drink. <laughs> and so when I did my first harvest, that was really, really funny because the owners of the winery I was working at, they were like, you can't drink anything, but we'll let you smell it all. And it, so it really developed my nose oh. way earlier than I developed my palate. And so like, I was able to suss out things like hydrogen sulfides or different faults that were happening. And I learned a lot about how a winery operates through like, you know, cleaning and, and, you know, doing things like that. I hand disgorged traditional method, sparkling wine bottles, you know, so I got a lot of knowledge just from mm -hmm. doing those things and without actually tasting very much. I mean, obviously I was tasting a little bit here and there, but with, when I was there, they were like, nope, you can't taste anything. We don't want to get in trouble. So you can smell stuff and that's all we're going to let you do. But, you know, it, honestly, being forced to just only use my nose in a winery was really, really great initial training. I, I was getting ready to say that is actually, um, if you think about it, because you're, you're just smelling and at that age, mm -hmm. you're training your brain, which is based because us old folks now, you know. We don't learn as quick as we used. So you trained your olfactory senses um, before you started taste. That is a, that's phenomenal. That's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, Don't and I actually, I, really, I, I encourage people who are new to wine to do that first, you know, like mm -hmm. just go to the grocery store and buy a bunch of fruit or spices or something like that. And really, and, and 
I call it actively smelling because like most mm-hmm. people you go through your, your day and there's very rare occasions where you're like, Oh, what does that smell? You know, it has to be something very like, Whoa, okay. That's a bad smell. Right. smell. But if you sit there and d- during your daily normal time period, like whatever you're doing, just sit there and say, mm-hmm. okay, what am I smelling right now? And really actively smell. Mm-hmm. Um, it really helps with your training and helps you identify smells in wine when you get to that point. So I, I encourage definitely smell everything, smell dirt, smell rocks, smell plants, smell, smell stuff in your kitchen. You know, that's, it's important. It's definitely a key part of training. How do you, I know that you're a winemaker now, but how do you keep your brain active that, you know, so much information, how do you like organize it all and apply it to what you do on a daily basis? Oh man. Um, you know, it's, it's funny that in the NW, we have uh, a saying that there's, there's different stages of learning. There's, you don't know what you don't know. You know what you don't know. You know what you know, and then you don't know what you know. And so, and we're all on that path at some point, like as a master of wine, you, it doesn't mean you know everything. It means you know enough to pass the exam. You know, so there's still things about wine that I know I'm missing parts of. And there's a lot of stuff I know about wine that I've got up here that I've probably forgotten. And then it just pops in my head one day when I was like, oh yeah, there's that thing. Um, so I don't know, it just pops out when you need it type situation, whereas you don't actually actively think about it. Um, and then there are times when I'm like, oh my God, I used to know this. Why don't I still know this? <laughs> and I have to go look it up. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all of that. What was your first job and what do you do now? Sure. So my first job, I was telling you a little bit about it. Um, I was called a winemaking apprentice and I was at a winery in Pennsylvania called Stargazer's Vineyard. And so that was my first foray into the wine world. And they were so great at helping me figure out what was going on and what I should be looking for and stuff like that. Um, and John Wagey at the owner and winemaker there is a very like old school European style, traditional winemaker. And so it was a really great introduction for wine to me. Um, and then, you know, I just kind of worked my way up. I, my second and third harvests were in the Finger Lakes while I was going to Cornell at school. And then I moved out to California. I was out in California for nine years. I worked kind of all over the state in a bunch of different regions. Um, And then we moved back to New York and I did a couple of harvests out there. And then we moved back to California. And that's when we realized like, okay, we can't pick a coast. Clearly, we're just going to have to go back and forth. Um, And so currently, I, like I said, I just uh, quit my full-time job and I'm a consulting winemaker now. And also managing our own company where we have Trestle 31 and Snowshell Vineyards and Fayarua now. This summer, we had the opportunity to be in the Finger Lakes. Mm-hmm. And um, I noticed that the Finger Lakes is, um, in the lack of a better term, a fertile ground for young winemakers. Mm-hmm. There, um, and there's a lot of them there learning and um, spending a harvest here and then going south for another harvest also. What is so attractive about that area that um, people go to to get their wine legs, so to say? No, that's a great question. And I, I really think it's, there is multiple reasons. One, I think if you spend one harvest in the Finger Lakes, 
you have seen every problem you are likely to encounter in your winemaking life because it's so hard to make wine there. I mean, between the rain all all season and just you know the different aspects of the vineyard issues we have. I mean, it's really challenging area to make wine in. So that's one. It's like altitude training for making wine anywhere else. And two, I think the camaraderie of the region and of all the wineries there is really special. Um, like all of us know we're, we're trying to make the best wine we can. We're really trying to push the boundaries. And so I think just being a part of that community is so invigorating to all of us. Um, so it, it's a really special thing to be a part of. Was it just geography or the housing market that made, no, not housing, but land-wise, that made you choose one lake over the other for your um, um, vineyard? Um, that was mostly like, that's where the property that we bought came up for sale. Um, so gotcha. I had, I had told my husband, I said, okay, we need a minimum of 10 acres and I need to be as close to the lake as humanly possible. So those were the, that was the definition of, and so we were searching and searching and searching. And so finally he found this one piece of property in late 2014. Um, and it was really close to the lake, not on the lake, but within you know, 20 yards or so of, of the mm. lake, you know, and so we don't have lakefront per se, but we're really close. Um, there's a row of like vacation houses in between us and the lake. That's, that's kind of, it. it's close though. And it's 12 acres. So nice. I was like, all right, it's over the minimum number of acreage and it was in our budget. And so um, we kind of did something a little bit risky at the time, probably because, you know, 2014, we were still all coming out of that recession that we had. And um, mm -hmm. we took a second mortgage out on our house here in California and paid for the land with cash. And then in 2015, we ended up selling our house here in California, paid off the mortgage on the house and the second mortgage on the house and moved back to New York. And so that's, uh, that's how we started with our, our property out there. And so what we're doing right now is we're buying fruit from our neighbor. So it's the same soil, same aspect, same side of the lake and same area of the lake. And so once we get our vines going on that property, then it'll be very, very similar from a terroir perspective. So that's, that's the goal anyway. What all grapes do you grow? So we, we personally don't grow any yet. So that's, you know, eventually we will have some on there. Um, what we're looking at planting is of course, Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, a little bit of Cabernet Franc, and maybe some Gewurztraminer on that property. Um, but right now we are buying Riesling from our neighbors and Chardonnay from across the lake on the west side of the lake, same lake, Seneca Lake, but um, on the other side of the lake. And then we also this past harvest bought some Cabernet Franc from the bluff on Cuca. So if you know where the Finger Lakes are, there's the lake that looks like a Y. So the bluff is like that middle section of the Y. And so I got some Cabernet Franc from over there. So we're making a dry rosé this year, which will be released in a couple months. And then we're making a, a red Cabernet Franc, which will be another couple of years before that comes out. So we are drinking Trestle. Yes. Um, Leslie, what are you drinking? Which bottle are you drinking? I have the 2020 Riesling Demisac. Okay. Perfect. Glennis is drinking the same. And I'm yeah. drinking the 2019 Riesling. Which I, I have to say... I, I think, um, I don't know if you guys have already talked about it, Glance, if you've talked about it. Okay. Um, now I want to hear your, your opinion compared to mine. So this is good. Okay. So it's funny because Glennis and I usually grab the same bottle. We don't talk about it. 
Um, this, because I, let me say, most people don't realize how high in acid Riesling can be. And so for this to be a demi-sec, I think it's beautifully made. Mm -hmm. And it's not, um, because often when you think of demi-sec, you, you think of um, like a sugar cane. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this is, this is not that, that you know that there's residual sugar there. You get hints of it, but it's not overwhelming. It's not what people would think the traditional, quote unquote, traditional Riesling would be. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's got really nice Petro, I think, on the nose and on the palate. It I it's I think it's very lovely. Thank you so much. Yeah, I pretty much said the same thing, Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> and you so like was, to you guys open the Chardonnay. I, you know, I opened it last week. I just like threw together like some jerk chicken real quick over the stove. It didn't go in the yeah, oven she go bragging again. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, well, what am I going to drink? I was like, oh, well, you know what? Let's do the Chardonnay. And I opened it. And you know how you like, you're unex, you're, you just don't expect it to be like that, that good. But I was like, oh my, oh my goodness. This is, <laughs> this is so good. <laughs> and then I was, and, and I, the words that I use in my Instagram post, I was like, this it's so classy. It, it, it's taste educated. If that's a thing, I, I really loved it. No, it's, it's oh, really, that's, oh, really you guys are making my day right now. I'm so <laughs> glad. Like, well, cause I mean, well, Leslie, going back to your discussion on the demi sack, I was telling these ladies earlier, it, you know, making a Riesling is like making a good lemonade. You really have to balance that. Yeah. Yes. And, and if you make mm -hmm. it too sweet, it gets cloying and heavy and not refreshing. And if it's too sour, it's not pleasant to drink. You know, mm -hmm. so it's really a, a key to, to go back and forth there. And so with the demi-sec, what I wanted to ha was have a wine with a little bit of sugar, but not something that felt heavy, you know, just that. And with that thought of it being refreshing right. and bright and, and lovely with the dry Riesling. So the stand, the original Riesling, uh, Sarita, which you have, the goal is to make it more textural and have the weight come from the fruit itself and mm. not from sugar. And I think so many people are so used to Riesling, the weight coming from the sugar that they don't realize that you can actually have a lot of very complex fruit weight coming from the, the fruit itself and without having to leave the sugar there. And then I love what your description of the Chardonnay is. It's like, I, my goal for that Chardonnay is really to be like a fine white Burgundian style of Chardonnay. It's definitely not a big, rich California Chard, um, which is funny because I've had some people come back and say, oh, it's too Californian to be New York. And I'm like, okay, just take out of your mind the fact I work in California and really look at the wine, you know? Um, because it's, it's so beautiful and has this fresh crispness to it. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It's got some complexity from the oak and, and stuff like that. So it's meant to be a really beautiful example. And so I always try to make wines that will sit amongst the great wines of the world in that category and not just be, you know, it's kind of a backhanded compliment for somebody to say, oh, it's a great wine for New York. You know, I, I want it to be a great wine, period. Yeah no matter where it's from. Yeah, we get that a lot in Maryland too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People make that yeah. comment a whole lot. Wow. I think, um, well, you know, I think you summed it up well, um, but people are often dismissive of Riesling. Mm -hmm. and, um, and 
and like you said, there is texture to this Riesling and there's layers of it that mm -hmm. it's not just, you know, porch sipping, which mm -hmm. I mean, it's great. Like yeah. I like a great porch, but it's, it's, it's more than that. Like you could definitely pair this with an excellent meal mm -hmm. um, and not just, not just like reserved for dessert or anything mm -hmm. of that nature, but it oh. definitely has some, it has some structure and bones to it. Yeah. yeah. I think I have a special connection with, with Riesling because when I first learned how to taste it was, I mean, it was the first white grape outside of you, like your Chardonnay and Pinot Regio, that kind of thing that I could, I could taste and knew what it was blind. So <laughs> yeah, this is like a quintessential, you know, really good Riesling to me. Thank you. Um, Serena, was that Riesling? I'm sorry, the, you had, you, you had a few Instagram food posts. It <laughs> <laughs> was... Was this one, and I, I noticed that you used trestle, but I didn't notice which one. Mm -hmm. was, it the, was it the Riesling or the so Chardonnay? So I used this pairing? one. I paired this one with falafel yesterday. Um, and then the Chardonnay with jerk chicken last week. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So, no, but so did you, I think you quickly said the Chardonnay is on oak. Is it total oak or is it some stainless steel fermentation? So it depends on the vintage because we're small. And so whenever you buy a new barrel, you have to kind of rethink in your mind the weight of the new oak versus the older oak versus stainless. Mm -hmm. And so what we have in our rotation now is we have two stainless steel barrels mm -hmm. and then a plethora of new and all the way to three-year-old oak. And so whenever I buy a new oak barrel, I try to make sure there's either neutral oak or stainless in the mix so that mm -hmm. the new oak is not overwhelming and overpowerful. And I also buy really good new French oak, you know, like there's definitely, you know, there's, there's French oak and then there's really good French oak. I buy the really good French oak. So it only allows me to buy one barrel a year, but that barrel is totally worth it um, because it has such a beautiful character to it. Um, so it's a Francois Ferrer, or not, sorry, not a Francois Ferrer, it's a Darko Jaglet medium toast barrel. And that's a very specific Cooper that is specializes in Burgundian varieties. And, you know, if you're mm -hmm. going around Burgundy, like your two top Coopers in Burgundy are Francois Ferrer and Dargo Jaglet. Like you're going to see those pretty much everywhere. Um, but I think, you know, Francois Ferrer is my favorite Pinot Noir Cooper, but I feel like Dargo Jaglet really gets Chardonnay in a really beautiful way. And so I feel like that variety and this cooper really marry together well and so what i do is i i do this balancing act of kind of looking at how many barrels we're going to fill and how many new barrels there are and then trying to balance that with more neutral barrels so that each year we have a consistent level of oak but it actually takes a lot of work on the back end to, to understand like how that's going to play out over the long term Interesting. I know this might not be appropriate, but I'm going to ask anyway, because that's my job on this world suite as usual. So they're not surprised. <laughs> okay. How much or can you give us a range of how much a really good French oak barrel costs versus not even going just how much I, I, just, I have no yeah. idea. Yeah. So I paid $1,600 for my barrel last year for that's wow. one barrel that goes 59 gallons of wine goes into that, you know, wow. and so if you think about like 
if you're looking at the price breakdown of a bottle of wine, your number one cost is the fruit. That's always the number one cost. Right. Your second cost is your barrels. So if you're putting the wine into barrel, like that's going to be your biggest secondary cost on things. And your third cost is your labor, everything you have to do to, to make the wine physically in the cellar. So those are the things that really stack up. And so you can get a relatively inexpensive European oak barrel for, uh, you know, maybe 900 to a thousand dollars. You can get uh, an American oak barrel for, you know, six to 800. Um, whereas, you know, the barrels that I I'm buying are, are pretty expensive. So, you know, the, the forests in France, they're all controlled by the, or most of them, I won't say all, they're mostly controlled by the French government. And they only cut so many trees per year to make sure that the industry is sustainable over time. And then the cooperages actually have to um, bid to be able to get those trees. And so it's a closed auction where all the coopers submit bids. And then if the French government thinks that they've got a good enough bid for the trees, then they'll cut the trees. If they don't get any good bids for the trees, they won't cut the trees. And so it's a very controlled market for the French oak barrels. Um, and so I, I like to work with coopers that are aggressive at getting the best trees and also coopers that have good stave yards because you have to age the staves for two to three years before they're ready to be made into barrels. Because if you do, to, if you use too green of a wood, you'll get really aggressive tannins in the barrels. It's obviously cheaper not to age the staves for that long, but it's not as good for the wine. And so I like to see staves that are at least two years old, if not three years old, before they're made into barrels. Wow, that's an inch. Well, that was a nice educational segment. Sorry, Sarita. Oh, that was <laughs> awesome. Can I, can, I, can I tag on your educational segment? Thank oh, you, sure. Dennis. Um, you mentioned two aggressive tannins. How, how much influence does the barrel have on tannins? Like we've, all, we, we've always talked about the skins, but how much influence does the barrel have? it can have quite a bit and it depends on the barrel. And so as a winemaker, I have to know when to play up the tannins using the barrel and when to back off the tannins using the barrels. And so each barrel can have, you know, enhancing capabilities and end up, you know, if, if there's a wine that I feel like needs more tannin, I'll pick a more tannic barrel. And so oak, um, so there's th several places where tannin can come from in red wine and for white wine too, but you know, it's skins, seeds, stems, and oak. Right. Those, are, those are your four places where tannin come from. And the oak tannin is a very different texture of a tannin than the tannin you find naturally in grapes. It's called gallic tannin. And um, it, it can be more um, like front of mouth sometimes. And uh -huh. so you have to be aware of how those barrels will play with your fruit. And so that's part of part of being a winemaker is understanding what spice to pull. You know, it's, it's, it's very similar to cooking. Like I always think of, I explain to people that barrels are like your spice rack and you know what each spice does and how it will enhance your food or play, play up or play down aspects of your food. And, and that's what barrels do too. I've been watching, there are three shows on network television that um, are based on wine. Um, so there's one called Promised Land mm -hmm. and that's on, um, ABC. And then there is Kings of Napa and that's on OWN. 
And then the third one um, is, I forgot the other one, Grand Cru. And that's, it's like, a, wine is the backdrop. It's sort of like a comedy. But there are, I'm nitpicking on the storylines at some parts in these shows because I'm like, can that really happen? Okay, so my first question is, um, <laughs> I, I just want you to know, I'm so excited to see where this conversation is going right now. I'm just saying. <laughs> okay, so on one show, um, they fired their winemaker. For whatever yes. reason, I'm not going to give you like the drama behind it, but they fire their winemaker. So the, and it's a family owned business. So the sister, she brings in a winemaker and she uses high in everything, I guess, like your high in barrels, but the brother who is the CFO brings in someone a little cheaper. And so you got these two winemakers. So the family decides, oh, well, my winemaker is bad. It's better. And they're going back and forth and they decide to have this competition. So each winemaker, I guess, makes, and they're making a dessert wine, makes a dessert wine out of their grapes or whatever to see who is going to get the job of the winemaker. So I'm looking, I'm like, don't y'all have like a budget meeting before y'all make these kind of decisions? <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, the answer to that is yes, okay. we do. So a little bit about Brian, my husband's background is he's in winery finance. So that's what he does. And so, and it's hilarious because we're both working from home right now. Our office, we're in the same office. Like he's sitting literally right next to me. And I'm sure he's like cracking up at this whole conversation, but yes, you should have a budget meeting prior to hiring anyone and say, okay, this is what we can do. And as a winemaker coming in, if you're looking at getting a job, it's your responsibility also to kind of say, Hey, this is how I like to make my wine. Does this fit with your budget? You know, because you can't come in and be like, Oh, I'm going to buy the best of everything. And that's only what I'm going to do. If your client can't afford it, like that's not, that's not reality. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of discussion around, you know, what, what does things cost? You know, what are we using it for? What's the, what's the return? So as a winemaker, you got to make sure a, your client can afford your winemaking and B you've got to understand what your client's goals are from a quality perspective, because if you go in there and your client is say, you're going to make a $20 bottle of wine, you're not going to be able to afford hardly any barrels on a $20 bottle of wine. Like that's, you know, I always tell people, if you look at the price point, what you're getting for your price point, you know, if you're under $15 a bottle, I guarantee you, even if it says Oak on there, those were not barrels. That was, that was some sort of Oak adjunct or chip or something like that. Because at $15 a bottle, you got to be doing some really crazy financial work to make barrels work for that. Like that's just not realistic for that price point. Whereas once you get above like $25 a bottle, that's when you're like, okay, maybe I can have a few barrel, maybe a small percentage of barrels or, you know, and then once you get above say, you know, $50 a bottle, then, okay. Yeah. You can, you know, you're a little more flexible in what you can do at that point because your income on the bottle is, is justifying it. And then once you go above, you know, 150 bucks a bottle, you can pretty much afford whatever you want to do on it. Is this retail when you're, when you're quoting? Okay. Yes. Just want to make sure. Yes. Mm. Interesting. So I had another, another quick question about the same TV show. There was one scene where uh, the girl, she's the president of the winery or whatever. She's the, they're called, she's, they're calling her the president. Mm -hmm. She's giving everybody like um, tasks. All right. You're in charge of marketing. I need you I need you to give us the, the best distribution deal that I've ever seen. Uh, 
know how that works. How do you get a distributor? And is there such thing as a deal in wine? Hey, you know, the way that's phrased, I don't think that exists. Okay. Um, because the way a distributor works is they're a customer of yours. So you're, you're saying, Hey, usually it's them coming to you and saying, Hey, I'd like to buy X, Y, and Z, because I guarantee you, I've tried to knock on distributor doors. They're not opening unless they see something in your portfolio that they need from you. Like I got really lucky because my distributor in New York city, Wagant selections, they came to us and they're like, Hey, we want a finger like wine in our portfolio. We think you're doing really cool stuff. Let's see if we can work something out. I can't tell you the number of distributors I have emailed and called and said, hey, I'm looking for distribution in South Carolina or Georgia, whatever. And I don't even get a call back. Like if you're under 25,000 cases, like they don't even care. <laughs> uh, once you get above that, then you can probably get a call back, but don't expect to get a lot of attention from them. Like, you know, so they're really a, a facilitating business. Like they will facilitate you being able to sell a wine in a certain state at, in, you know, restaurants and retail stores. So th them, you as a producer, you going out and finding a deal with a distributor seems a bit odd. Now that's not saying that you can't make deals with distributors and say, Hey, if you are able to sell hundred thousand cases of this wine into this, then, then we'll both be, you know, much better off for it, you know, that type of thing. You can do that, but uh, I mean, you can, you can do things where you can offer them advertising deals to say, okay, we'll let you go on, have this wine go on sale, you know, during this period, like that's a thing, um, you know, but yeah, that, I, the way it, it sounds like it was worded, it's probably not realistic, but, but similar enough to reality that might be plausible. Is that, okay. you know, we're going back okay. to Going okay. back to uh, way the Mythbusters group <laughs> discussions, like maybe plausible, but you know, questionable. Okay, that's fair. Do you two have any other questions for Nova before we move to our fun questions? Um, can you come back when we look? When we, I don't added myself to her. Can you come back when the Cabernet? And Absolutely. can we get it? you know that's like my favorite. yeah no I'd be happy to. I was gonna ask the same thing I was like let us know when the cab front is ready that's so cab front we'll we'll do cabernet too we'll do so we've got so it was 2021 harvest which means it's got to spend 18 months in barrel so that's going to be bottling in 2023 and then it's a year in bottle so it'll be released in 2024 yes okay. you hear it here first Swirl sweet <laughs> listeners. <laughs> well, that's the thing is the wine industry, you can't like just turn a tap on and suddenly stuff comes out. Like you have yeah. to plan for years in advance. Yeah. And with the Riesling, you know, we keep all the Riesling and all the Shard in bottle for a year before we release it. So it's a two year turnaround for all of our whites and a three year turnaround for the reds. The only thing that's going to be released like immediately is the rose because hmm. rose just needs that. And what are you, what grape are you going to use to make your rosé? That's Cab Franc too. Oh, ooh, nice. Yes. Yeah. There might be a little bit of Riesling thrown in there. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Haven't finished the blend yet, but it, it'll, it mostly will be Cab Franc. Nice. Okay. All right. 
So we have some fun closeout questions for you. Okay. All right, here we go. What do you drink in your downtime? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I drink pretty much everything. Um, so I'm a very seasonal drinker. So if it's cold outside, I'm drinking reds. If it's warm outside, I'm drinking whites and rosés. So that's, that's kind of how the process flows. Um, but, you know, I also drink cocktails and things. So my, like my favorite summer cocktail is called a white linen. And it's, um, it's an old school cocktail that's got um, gin and cucumber and St. Germain topped off with a little bit of simple syrup and sparkling water. And so it's just such a refreshing thing in the summertime with the cucumber and everything and all the spices in the gin. And, and so it's beautiful. It's a beautiful cocktail. Um, but I love, I never turn down champagne. I drink it all the time. We, I, I was saying the other day to somebody that my husband and I stockpile champagne, like other people stockpile toilet paper. <laughs> we're, we're good. Everybody was freaking out that nobody was going to get champagne for the new year. I'm like, no, we're good. We got it. <laughs> no, but have you-, you tried those botanical, um, not necessarily the gins, but the vodkas. vodkas. Mm-hmm. No, I have not tried those. Oh my gosh. They good? Yeah, I, I think so. There's a, there's, when you mentioned cucumber, um, Effin. Oh, I've had their cucumber. It's good. Yeah, that one is good. And then also, um, forgot the name of the other one. I just had it last night. Uh, Kettle One. Kettle oh one. yeah, I've heard of the Kettle One botanicals. I haven't tried those yet though. Oh, yeah. those are so good. They sneak up mm-hmm. on you. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, my favorite non-alcoholic spirit is seed lip. I don't know if y'all have tried those, but um, it's a, it's a non-alcoholic like mixer basically. And you can make cocktails with it without having the alcohol there, which to, was very important to me when I was pregnant um, because you get tired of just drinking water all the time. And especially, right. you know, managing calories and your health and all that stuff like that. Sometimes it's nice to mix in a non-alcoholic thing. And what is the name again? Called seed lip. Seed lip. Yeah. So they they make three different ones. The citrus one is my favorite. And then I like the spice one as well. Mm, The garden one's a little bit of an acquired taste. It tastes kind of like fresh peas out of the garden. Mm. And so, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't like peas, that one might turn you off a little bit, but the other two are, are pretty much crowd pleasers. Any particular um, champagne you feel rises to the top of your favorite list? Oh, I'm a big fan of Bollinger. Like, I just, I love that house. They're just so good. And then Ayala, which of course is also owned by the same company that owns uh, Bollinger. It's just so, Ayala is a little bit less well-known, but I think is equally good and so represents some value there. So um, that one's pretty tasty. Nice. All right. Next question is for everybody. What was the last show or movie you watched during a snowstorm? Okay. I got one for you. I know what it was. It is on Showtime and it is a four-part series about Bill Cosby. I just saw that on Facebook. People were talking about that. That's interesting. I I hear it's unbelievable. It is. You hmm. you know the guy um was it Kamal Bell who does the series on CNN? He he does the series and basically, even though somebody is like despicable, they still do good. Like mm-hmm. even the worst people, and so they do this 
show his good acts and then the other stuff. It's mind blowing. Oh, I, you know, it's funny because I so rarely like just sit down and watch TV. <laughs> um, but the two things that are kind of my guilty pleasures right now, because, you know, when I watch TV, like it kind of has to be like totally Fine. not thinking about anything is um, Netflix's Emily in Paris. Oh, so cute. good. So freaking cute. So, good. Yeah, so cute. Really cute. Um, and then I, you know, there's a group, it's, you're going to laugh. There's a group of MWs that are super into the bachelor. And so like we, I have to, I have to watch it in order to be able to converse with folks, you know, it's like, and, and it's, and then, and now of course I've gotten into it. So now I have to see what happens at this point. Um, it comes on at eight o'clock. Yep. Yep. So the last, the last like really interesting documentary I saw, I was on a plane and it was the documentary around Sesame Street. I don't know if y'all have seen this. It's, um, oh. oh gosh, I can't remember the name of it. Um, it's like on my street or something like that. And it talks about the development of Sesame Street and why it was developed and who developed it and what the plan was behind it. And I, you know, I grew up watching Sesame Street during that era and I had no idea. But it was so fascinating to watch now as somebody who grew up with it to see like the controversy. I never realized, I never thought of Sesame Street as that controversial, but man, I it just, it was amazing to see it now as an adult and think back of like what I was watching as a kid that I had no idea about. And, and so that, that was really, really fascinating. I can't remember the name of it right off the top of my head though. Hmm. Wow. That's interesting. That's interesting. I have to add those to my list. Uh, Glenn, is, is it The Bachelor, your answer? Oh, no. that Oh, I'm watching that regardless. That The Bachelor, <laughs> that's how I know what she was talking about, 8 o'clock. I'm going to have to hang out with the Masters of Wines. I'm not <laughs> but yeah. Um, also, Amazing Race is back on. How love is amazing. that? That looks like a really interesting show. I love, well, especially if you love to travel. Mm -hmm. I what, The reason why I started watching The Bachelor and Amazing Race is because you get to find really good hotels and resorts. Ah. And as soon as I was like, oh, let me check that out. And that's how I found the Rosewood in Thailand. Because one of those shows, I was like, oh, okay, let me see. So, okay, now we digress. Okay, so we just got to cut that out of the um, podcast. But to answer your question, um, so my snowstorm show that I watched was on Netflix only two seasons but there's like 13 episodes and I know I'm not going to pronounce it correctly because um, it's um, Spanish but it, inaugurable inaugurable um, it's about a Mexican president that dies and they um, accuse the wife but it is actually the drug cartel that the wife's father is in bear with because of some previous stuff and um it, i'm not gonna go into it, but it, it's so good and netflix is not re renewing it for the third season so i'm almost at the end of it so i watched that over you know the last couple of days during the snowstorm so mm. those are mine. nice it's mm -hmm. really nice yeah so my so answer is um so there is uh, a bunch of Black uh, South African movies on Netflix, and one is called Happiness Ever After. And in, it's, first of all, everything, the, to the people, the hotels, their apartments, everything is gorgeous. So I was like, okay, 
So, all right, I got to go to South Africa. It's just one of those movies that makes everything look so beautiful. Mm -hmm. So, but the actual movie and the acting was pretty good. I mean, because everything on Netflix isn't great, but this particular movie, Happiness Ever After, I watched during the last snowstorm. It was really good. Nice. And that's filmed in South Africa? Yeah. In South Africa. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. That's on my bucket list for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Love it. Love South Africa. All right. Next question. Cannoli or eclairs? Ooh, eclairs. No, no question. I mean, I know my (laughs) Italian half of a family would just roll over, but I'm a big sucker for eclairs. I'm a cannoli girl. I love cannolis. Really? Yeah. Do I have to choose? (laughs) So here's my problem with cannolis. And and maybe this is, I don't know, but it's, if you try to bite them and maybe they have to be the right size or something like that, Mm -hmm. I always feel like they end up just like collapsing on you and you end up like holding an giant pile of crumbs and cream and stuff. And I feel like they're hard to eat and they don't have chocolate on them usually. Like some of them do, but- Um, like they clear, like you could, you're guaranteed cream and chocolate and dough and all of that together is just magic. See, now if you pair, if you combine those, not combine those, just because there's no combining those. <laughs> but if I had to have an Italian, oh, an Italian dessert, I love a good tiramisu. Yes. Like my cream. Yes. Yeah. Let me oh, tell you. Hands down. Yeah. Tiramisu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now that's a much harder yeah. discussion. Eclair versus tiramisu. Like, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Hands yeah. down. Mm-hmm. I always derail her stuff. She always I, gives it. I'm I like, know, I, you know, I'm not like, I was like, I'm not going to do All right, next question. What's more difficult, getting up in the morning or going to bed at night? Getting up, hands down, getting up. I'm not a morning person at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I will. I will naturally, if allowed my own time clock, I would stay up later and then sleep until like nine or 10 in the morning, Mm. but life doesn't really function on that, especially when you have young kids. And so getting up is really, really difficult for me going to bed. I can be asleep in like two seconds. (laughs) I have no problem going to sleep. Um, I'm a morning person. So the going, but I love my bed and clean sheets. So I got no problem getting in the bed. So and just like glass of wine and watching these shows. So that's a hard, let's see, so here we go again. That's a hard <laughs> question because I get up. So now it, it, when you say get up in the morning, like I, I wake up consistently five, six o'clock in the morning, no problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you say getting out of the bed, did you say getting out of the bed? Or just I didn't, but that, that can be included. Okay. I mean, because some but people I- have trouble going to sleep. Right. Oh, no, yeah. I don't know. Don't, don't, don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, my, my husband is definitely one of those people that has Yeah, trouble. mine too. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 no, I have I no problem. That's for those people. I know, Me too. I know. <laughs> and like we're, we're in a, uh, cause we, we both have Fitbits and the newer Fitbits, it, um, it watches your sleep patterns mm-hmm. and it gives you a, a rating, a score based on mm-hmm. how you sleep. And so we're in competition of how like sleep is. So so does your Fitbit do like the Apple Watch? It will tell you which gram of sleep you're in. Yeah, it tells you the stages, all of the stages. Yeah, my highest score was probably like maybe like a 92, and I slept for like eight and a half hours. So I can I can get there. So that's like my you know my benchmark. But but yeah, I have no problem sleeping. I have no problem getting up. 
And so I'm like you, Glennis. I have anxiety when I feel I'm not going to get enough sleep. Like, <laughs> what you mean? I'm not going to get real. enough sleep. I can't get my bed. I'm like, oh, I need to get my sleep. I love yeah. it. Sleeping yeah. is just marvelous. Yeah. Yeah. I'm telling you. So, yeah. Leslie, are you the same? Yeah, I don't see. I wake up. Because we all get up early. I noticed that. Yeah, we, we all Yeah, we, we travel together. We all get up early. And I do this thing that I have to stop doing. Like, Glennis, I will lay in the bed. And the next thing, and I will start on that damn Instagram. And the next I think that's my one rule. Exactly. That's my one rule. I don't scroll in bed. I can't. You don't? Nah. Uh-huh. Nah. Oh, I just I plug you, my phone up and I put good. it down. Mm-hmm. That is good because 45 minutes later, I'm like, what the hell? No. <laughs> Am I still doing it in the bed? Yes. No. Yes. Right here. I totally understand. I can't yeah. do it. Nope. <laughs> nope. I know what you mean. <laughs> All right. This last question is really fun. I've never asked anybody this before. If you were Uh-oh. president, what would you have built inside of the White House? If you need an example, Obama built a basketball court. Roosevelt added an indoor pool and movie theater. What would you add? Oh, I know. That's easy. A roller skating rink. Cute. That's really cute. Go back. (laughs) I love roller skating. And it would be really high tech because I know it would be um, certain times you could make it could be a roller skate or ice skating because I love both. Mm. But yeah. I'm glad you have a coordination because I have neither. I cannot skate <laughs> on either. Oh, I love both. I can I, ice skate, but I cannot roller skate. Really? And I don't wow. know why. That seems more difficult. I, I started you know, ice skating. But I, I can't do the roller skating. I mean, I really? rollerbladed and I managed to break my tailbone pretty hardcore. And it's just oh. like, I, I just can't do it. I'm like, I will ice skate, but I don't, I don't know about the rollers. That's interesting. That's interesting. I started ice skating and then went to roller skating mm. as a little so. Mm. so I would definitely add conservatory onto you know because I love a conservatory there's something about like when it's really cold outside and snowy and you walking into like a warm greenhouse type mm. environment mm. with tropical Very plants nice. like it just makes you feel better in yeah. about everything you know yeah. if you just can feel warm and cozy for a little bit so nice. that was what I would add I love nice. that I would have a um, one of those golf putting greens in um, simulators. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Oh, so and, and definitely a salon. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and and a salon, which they probably already have one. You know, I can't imagine. I feel like I read somewhere that they have a golf simulator in the basement. Do they? They were, yeah, I feel like, I, I don't know for sure, but I feel like I recall mm-hmm. somebody saying that. So you're not off base with that. Okay. So I got two rooms. Um, one, um, a wine bar that everybody can enjoy, even the staff of the White House. Mm-hmm. Everybody can have like their after shift drink, that kind of thing. So I would definitely have a wine bar and uh, a spa. Like fully yeah. equipped, the massage tables, like everything. Steam room, everything. Everything. Sauna, the whole thing. Yeah. I'm thinking it might have that. Right? Uh, they might. They just might. 
But I think that wine bar will drive Secret Service crazy. You're like, oh, oh, oh. y'all don't really interact with him. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the Secret Service would like you, Serena. But they would have to work for the press. I'd have it for the press. Oh, the cute. Press That's really cute. Yeah. 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 Love yeah. That. That, might, that might get dangerous after a few drinks. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> Off the what's record, that, like what's that <laughs> event that they um have where the president roasts the press? Oh, uh, the the press corps dinner. Press mm-hmm. corps dinner, yeah. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. Trump wouldn't go to. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> back to the regularly scheduled program. <laughs> Had to crack myself up. <laughs> oh my gosh. Nova, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, before you go, tell everybody where they can follow you and all of your um, activities that you have going on, your businesses. Sure, yeah. So we, uh, my personal, um, I have a website, uh, novacatamatri.com. Uh, Nova Katam- it's at novacatamatri on Twitter and Instagram. Um, the businesses, so at Trestle31 on Instagram and Twitter, and we're, we've got a Facebook page for Trestle31, and also Trestle31.com is where you can go and order our wines. And you can also come visit us now because we have a tasting room in Geneva that um, wasn't quite open when y'all were there, but it's open now. So feel free to come back and visit us. And uh, it's a really fun little spot. Um, it was an old tattoo parlor, and we've kind of just updated it just a little bit. It still has a little fun feel of little little alcoves that people can sit and have wine and cheese and, and just hang out. I like to call it a tasting lounge versus a tasting room. Oh, nice. Can you get a tattoo too? While you no, no, we don't have the tattoos anymore, but uh, but that's what it was. So that's kind of fun. That nice. sounds so cute. Well, thank nice. you so much for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time to hang with us today. Oh, this was oh, fun. Yeah. Thank y'all. And yeah, yes. I definitely uh, look forward to coming back when we've got the Cab Franc. And the Cabernet. And we have an elephant mm. memory, so we will be sending it. <laughs> <laughs> <Sounds great. laughs> All right, thank you. Thanks for joining us, Swell Suite, once again, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this episode. So, next up, we have the cast of Sparklers from Psalm TV. I'm going to try my best to get that episode out on Friday morning, so stay tuned. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, and leave us five stars. Cheers.